This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. And Jason, let's not forget, it's week 21, dog days of summer, and yet an incredibly busy week on many fronts. We talked a lot about the virus and vaccine. Uh, we're going to cover that over the next couple of hours. And a lot of talk about education and what they're ultimately going to do this fall. And I think it's safe to say that the virus and its economic, social, cultural effects effects have really started to embed themselves broadly in the world. And the cover story this week, it's all about Google's push into healthcare, how it's a case study on how tech giants dominate small businesses. And again, this is partially and largely, I should say, related to the pandemic. Yeah, and also related to the pandemic sports. And we got to check in with the owner of the Sacramento Kings, what they are doing. He's actually in the bubble in Disney World. So we talked to him about playing sports in a pandemic. We also talked with him about upping his bet on something that's become Wall Street's favorite new toy. We're talking about SPACs. That's right. Those blank check companies, it feels like anyone who's anyone has Mm -hmm. got one of those these days raising money, going public in a slightly different way. First, we spoke with Dr. Joanne Roberts, the chief value officer over at Providence St. Joseph Health. Remember, and I know you know this, Carol, but Mm -hmm. let's remind everybody, this was the first health system in the United States with a confirmed case of coronavirus back earlier in the year. So they have seen this all along the way. Yeah, from day one. It's a massive healthcare system. So we checked in with her about the virus, about the race to get a vaccine and all those treatments to really get control of COVID-19. What we're seeing in Providence is our hospitalizations uh, remain uh, relatively high, but they are leveling off. What we are seeing in the community, however, is an increasing number of positive tests in the community. pretty much up and down the West Coast, especially in the Pacific Northwest. So we are by no means uh, out of the woods yet, even though we are happy about the, the leveling off of the hospitalizations. So Dr. Roberts, as you look across the country and having had the experience, as we often point out when we have guests from your institution, you guys had the first U.S. case of the coronavirus confirmed you have seen this develop from essentially start to finish in the United States. What's the biggest mistake people are making when it comes to reopening? Well, I think we, we hear it uh, and, and all of our, uh, from all of our scientists. It is the, the distancing, the mask, avoiding crowds, and uh, maintaining good hand hygiene. If we could stick to those four things, I think we could get to an opening faster uh, with some of the institutions in our, in our uh, country. But since not everybody is abiding by that, what does it mean? I mean, do we need to shut down again in order to get control of this? Gosh, you know, I I look at the news shows myself and I tell myself, I'm glad I'm a doctor and not a policymaker. These are difficult choices for our country to make. Uh, What I can say is if we exercise those four things, we would probably be able to open schools safely, um, maybe some other institutions safely, but maybe not bars, um, maybe not you know, maybe not sports events yet. But we could move faster than we are moving, but we haven't all come together, as you said, on, on just those four four uh, so things let, we need to do. 
So, Dr. Roberts, talk to us about schools. Uh, it's top of mind for both Carol and me having school-age kids. I know for a lot of our listeners, it's the thing that they think about all the time, both on behalf of their kids, but also behalf on behalf of themselves, because it affects where you can work, if you can work, etc. What are the main things, you know, sort of taking those four things as givens, how do you execute that at a school, at an elementary school or a high school where proximity is baked in? How do you actually do it mechanically and logistically? I think every school has to figure out their own solutions for this, or at least every district. Uh, and, and, and maybe that's one of the blessings of having so many districts, because the other factor when it comes to schools that's really crucial is what the prevalence of, of infection rate is in your community. Mm-hmm. If the prevalence rate is very, very low, then it's, much, it's relatively safer to open up face-to-face schools. If the prevalence is very high, probably not. And I think so each district has to, has to gauge that. So let me go one level down on you with you on this because it is, you know, what we've heard from the mayor of New York City is 3% is sort of the, the threshold in terms of an infection rate, I believe. If it gets above 3%, then you can't open. Is that just owing to the the nature of the spread? I'm just trying to understand this from a layman's perspective as to sort of what the magic numbers are here, if there are magic numbers. There probably isn't a magic number. I mean, in our in our institution, we we often use one percent as a guide, but mm-hmm. there's there's no perfect number. But the issue is that the risk goes up exponentially as the rate of infection goes up. So right. just if you have one in five kids who is infected in the classroom, the rate of infection that they're going to spread is much, much higher than if it were, say, one in 20. And that's Dr. Joanne Roberts, the Chief Value Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health. Really, you know, we have this small stable. We've been very fortunate, Carol, to have this small stable of go-to voices. And the folks at Providence St. Joseph Health, they've seen it literally from the beginning here in the United States. And they're keeping a very close eye along with their colleagues. It's a big healthcare system, but they're also talking to folks all across the country. Yeah. And one of the next hurdles, you know, that really jumped out for me in our conversation was making sure um, that we have enough vaccines, production and allocation of them and making making sure we protect the people that need it the most and get them out in a really fast way. By the way, that entire interview can be found on our Bloomberg Business Week podcast, so check that out. Another obstacle, Jason, to overcome that we are reminded about daily because of the virus is the problems with our overall healthcare system. What needs to change to get it right? That conversation with Dr. Vivian Lee, president of Health Platforms at Verily Life Sciences. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Today we're bringing some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show this week. And Carol, spending a lot of time with doctors as we tend to do every week. Yeah, and that included Jason, Dr. Vivian Lee. She's president of Health Platforms at Verily Life Sciences. She's the former CEO of the University of Utah Health System. She's also written a book, The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies that Work for Everyone. So we talked with her about the healthcare systems and also opening up schools. You know, we're we're pretty much... Uh, struggling on almost all fronts, except for one, which is I have to say that I think that the 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 heroic measures that our frontline healthcare workers have been demonstrating, I think that that is something that we should all continue to celebrate. 
But in terms of the system itself, I, I think we, we are seeing, as you say, so many of its flaws right now. All right. So let's envision that we have a strategy session, right, of all the great minds in the medical community, global medical community for that matter, and we can make this system better. What would be the three things you would change from day one? Well, for the for to start with, we have to really change how we're paying for healthcare and what we're paying for. Right now, we are paying in a fee-for-service model for things to be done to us, regardless of whether they make us healthy or not. And that fee-for-service kind of model means that our healthcare systems just live from fee to fee. And as you can see with COVID, as many of them have been uh, having you know empty clinics and empty hospitals, they're actually being forced to shut down or even lay off people in so many in so many different parts of the country, especially rural parts of the country. So first is we really have to change the way in which we are paying for healthcare. The second thing is we really have to um, take advantage of the new technologies. Telehealth is one example. We're seeing a lot greater use of that, uh, more digital health solutions so that people can look after their own health in their homes, in their, in their workplace environments, for example. But those have to, again, be used in a way in which they're paid for generating better health, not just for doing more things to people. So take advantage of more of the technology. And then the third is I think we need a lot more transparency about what it is we're going to have to pay for, how much it's going to cost, why it costs what it does, so that we can really start to link up the costs with what we're actually getting for those dollars. And so, Dr. Lee, part of what you're talking about, a lot of what you're talking about, especially in that description, goes against some very entrenched economic interests. Uh, there are a lot of folks, especially big companies on the managed care side, on the healthcare system side, on the pharmaceutical side, they, and maybe they wouldn't admit this in the cold light of day, they kind of like the way it works. They're making a lot of money. How do you essentially make the case to policy officials, many of whom hear from these uh, companies through lobbying. How do you sort of make this change? How do you break the system in a way that people might be okay with? Well, there's no question that change is hard, but I think you'd be surprised at how much support there is for change, especially right now. So when you talk about managed care companies or insurers, they actually really want people to stay healthy. The healthier people are, the less they have to pay out and the better they do. Most healthcare systems, most people who come into healthcare, physicians, nurses, therapists, we want our patients to be healthy. We are not hoping for them to be sick. But what we want to do is to have just better alignment so we're paid for them to be healthier. You know, right now we just have the wrong incentives, right? We are only paid if they're sick. But actually in some cases, like some clinics that are working in a Medicare Advantage model, And there are these clinics that are all over the country where they're just paid a fixed amount of money to keep their uh, seniors healthy, and they get paid that fixed amount no matter what happens. They actually are are doing much better. They're actually spending more time with patients. There's less burnout. The patients uh, are hospitalized much less, and so they actually do better. So there really are some some strong incentives right now for moving uh, to what we call a paying for better health or paying for outcomes model, but we just have to get it all aligned at the same time so that we all make that transition together. We do want to bring you a little piece of an interview that our David Weston did with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Check it out, everybody. If you're talking about a medical question, listen to the medical experts. That's the advice. And you won't get a, you will not get a conflicting 
message from the medical experts about things like hydroxychloroquine, about what the results of a vaccine trial are, or what the results of monoclonal antibodies. So when it comes to pure public health medical things, listen to what the medical experts say. So Dr. Lee, you are a medical expert. I'm assuming you agree with what we heard from Dr. Fauci. What would you say then is the right thing to do when it comes to reopening schools and colleges and universities? You know, we are in such a difficult situation right now because we need to keep our economy going. We actually need to invest in our future, which is, I think, a big part of why we need to get our universities uh, back up this fall. Those students need to continue studying because they're our future. And at the same time, we have this massive upswing in COVID across the country, and we have to keep healthy. We have to keep everyone healthy. So there's a tension. I think it's pretty clear that wearing masks, social distancing, hand washing, making sure that if you're sick or have been exposed that you isolate, um, that these precautions or these measures do work. Um, For college campuses, we actually just put out um, a paper last week recommending, putting forward a series of four recommendations for reopening our college campuses. And I'm I'm happy to just go through those very quickly. Um, And the first is that we're really recommending that on top of all of the social distancing masks and everything, this is specifically around COVID-19 testing. It's recognizing that so many people, especially and including college-age kids, um, are asymptomatic, even though they may be COVID-19 positive and may be able to infect other people. And so as a result, testing is really central to, to our strategy. So first, we're recommending that everyone get tested before they really engage back in the college campus. So either before they arrive back or right after they arrive. Secondly, we're recommending that they get tested about a week afterwards to pick up those people who might have gotten sick along the way or whose tests were inaccurate because there are sometimes people may have the exposure, but the test might not be positive. Then we recommend everyone who does become symptomatic get tested, of course. And then finally, we're also recommending that at least a subset of people who are asymptomatic get tested regularly throughout the semester. So those are some of our recommendations. That's Dr. Vivian Lee, the president of Health Platforms at Verily Life Sciences. And Jason, many things stuck with me, especially our conversation around opening up schools, what needs to be done, and that we need to get them opened up because those students at colleges and universities, they are our future. So check out that full conversation. It's on our podcast feed. Well, and obviously, this is the big question for everyone. I mean, schools sit at the center of the entire economy. I think yeah. we've really come to realize that as we've talked about what reopening looks like and what getting the economy back on track really looks like. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, as we try to figure out what happens next, we're spending more time at home and probably listening to some music. We're going to hear from the president and CEO of Sonos, Patrick Spence. Yeah, they reported earnings and the stock moved on that report. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show throughout the week. And Jason, we'd like to remind everybody, this was happening in real time as news continued to evolve and cross the Bloomberg terminal. Well, that's absolutely true. And one of the things that we've been in the midst of over the past few weeks is earnings. And we're starting to get a window into what different companies are experiencing in this very uncertain time. That's certainly true at Sonos. We caught up with that company's president and CEO, Patrick Spence. We were uh, ahead of expectations, uh, both on top and bottom line, and we actually reestablished guidance for 
for Q4, uh, our next quarter as well, which is also ahead of guidance. So we're feeling very good about uh, what we've been able to achieve um, in the face of the pandemic and in the face of so many retail closures. I think that's the story to me is really the adaptability and resilience of the team. Our, our team has done an amazing job this quarter to really you know, refocus on direct-to-consumer and to launch three new products um, in a different way, given everything that was happening at the pandemic. We couldn't do our usual type of uh, big product launch in person, couldn't meet with all the reviewers, couldn't give them you know, an ability to look at and hear our products. But that sure hasn't stopped customers from buying a lot of them. Yeah, including us. We, we picked up a couple of the move um, because we're spending more time Thank in our you. backyard. You're welcome. Uh, you know, I really do think that focus, Patrick, on everybody's homes, I think we're seeing it play out in multiple ways with some of the companies that we talk to. I do want to take a step back. Tell me what life has been like for you all, um, you know, your team, your, you know, company, and then really for you, for you personally since, since really mid-March. Yeah, it's been a lot of time at home. You know, a lot of people talk about working from home, but we're also living at work, as yeah. I said to uh, to my team, right? And so it's been challenging uh, in terms of doing that. I think there's been a lot of adrenaline, quite frankly, that has carried us through and everybody wanted to be able to um, step in and figure this all out. Thankfully, we've always been distributed across Santa Barbara, Boston, Seattle, uh, Amsterdam, China. So we, we, we already were using tools like Zoom and Slack um, but we've really had to up the communication. And then for us, since we build hardware, you know, it's, it's actually quite difficult because we need people that are actually working and testing products in some of our physical locations. So we've had to put some really strict measures in place to ensure their safety because, you know, the, the primary thing through all of this has had to been, you know, really keeping our people um, safe and healthy. And so we do have a few people in some of our offices that um, that need access to certain equipment and those types of things. So we've really put a lot into making sure that we can do that. Um, and I'm so proud of the team and grateful, quite frankly, given everything going on in the world that most of our people can work from home. And so it's been challenging. Um, people have really stepped up, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, we, totally. We're certainly, I think, starting to, to see that. I mean, candidly, among colleagues and friends and neighbors and everybody, I mean, you're starting to see the stress and strain. I and think co-hosts. especially... Co-hosts. Exactly. <laughs> I can see it. I can see it on the video con right now. Oh, wait. I'm looking in the mirror. Um, so, Sorry. Patrick, you know, speaking of physical space, I mean, I do wonder you know, what it has meant to really have to shift, you know, almost exclusively or certainly primarily to an online direct-to-consumer channel versus retail stores. How does that change how you sell? How does it change how you spend money? How does it change how you sort of get to those customers? That's exactly the the, the thing that we've basically, you know, faced this whole quarter. And so, um, if you had asked me back in March, April, if we would have been able to deliver the quarter we just did, given the closures we saw across the board, uh, I would have, I would have thought that would be nearly impossible. I mean, it was incredible to watch how quickly the team throughout the existing playbook and was able then to, to pivot. And we look, our product has been made for this period. If we can bring a little bit of extra joy to people that are stuck at home. That's a good thing. And that's what we do. And so we said, you know what, let's, launched this campaign. We launched an at-home with Sonos campaign. We gave people some tips and tricks on um, how to use products. We reintroduced kind of move to them as well. So to Carol's point and buying that product, that product has been selling out like crazy. Um, So it's meant a lot of adapting, right? And that's meant, you know, just a lot of change, which again, is harder when you're distributed. Um, It's put stress on the system in terms of, you know, that 300% year over year growth. 
it's hard at any point to be able to support that when you're not together, just things like um, additional customer service people, right, that need to be able to take those calls, uh, putting pressure on the distribution channel in terms of getting product out to people on time. Um, all of the things that come with that um, have been a challenge that we've had to step up to. Um, and then I do think it's changed that is something that will carry on from here. So I have been um, pleasantly surprised by the willingness of customers to purchase some of our new products. You know, our ARC is $800, um, sight and sound unseen, right, um, on Sonos.com. And so that, that you know, gives me a lot of confidence in the brand and the trust that our customers have in the brand. Um, and so that's been a pleasant surprise, a silver lining, if you will, through all of this. And that's Sonos CEO Patrick Spence joining us. We are both very familiar with their systems. And <laughs> obviously, it's a tough market right yeah. now for a lot of folks, even though we're all nested at home. So some uneven things going on in that business, to say the least. Yeah, full transparency. We've got a bunch of Sonos products in our homes. And I do want to point out, Sonos's price target was raised by Morgan Stanley following their earnings report. So Wall Street definitely weighing in. All right, coming up next, tracking how to raise bold, courageous, and resilient women. It's a subject of of a book by a former U.S. Naval officer and senior advisor to the Obama White House. A topic very familiar to you and me. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show this week, Bloomberg Business Week. Catch it 2 p.m. Wall Street time every weekday. Love mm-hmm. this next guest, Carol, because we both are trying to raise bold, courageous, and resilient women. And talk about a bold and resilient woman. She's a former U.S. Naval officer, former senior advisor to the White House during the Obama administration. We're talking about Dr. Marissa Porges. She's head of the Baldwin School. She's got a book out. It's called What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. Check out this conversation. Yeah, I think it's this sense that we need to give our girls earlier and earlier some of the key skills that will differentiate them when they're adults. Things that came to me later in life, you may have your own stories about that when you learn to negotiate, when you learn to self-advocate, these things that, you know, by and large come more naturally to young boys, um, social norms, the way they're raised. Um, but we need our girls to have those strong voices, to be able to step into a room and negotiate, have an ask and have it be effective in a way that feels personal to them. It's also interesting to think about some of the key skills that are very natural to our girls, how they empathize and communicate. And if we lean into those strengths, that will be their competitive advantage when they're older, too. So it's both, you know, bridging the gap and helping them lean into their strengths. We were speaking with the dean of the business school down at Fuqua, uh, Fuqua Business School at Duke University, and, and he was talking about sort of this three uh, three-layered approach to some extent around leadership, which I'm guessing you would agree with because he talked about IQ and EQ, which we talk so much about, but also DQ, uh, which I would say is Dairy Queen, but he would say is the decency quotient, which I think is so interesting to think about as we try and raise empathetic young people. And I wonder, how do you teach something like that or how do you nurture it? Well, it's such a critical part of how we need to raise the next generation. And this idea that it can actually be taught, it's a learned skill that can be reinforced, um, even in, how, in, in what books you choose for your, um, your mm-hmm. kids. We learn empathy by taking other people's perspectives, by stepping into other people's shoes, and then thinking, well, not just how would we want to feel, but how would they want to feel. 
So read fiction. Read fiction where the protagonist, especially for young girls, is someone who is a young girl themselves but has a different background. You know, it's something that we weave into our curriculum at Baldwin, and I know, Carol, I'm sure your daughter's school does as well, but we need to think about this for all our girls and, and our boys too, especially these days when we're really trying to bridge gaps and understand different perspectives. And so that is a key way you can actually teach the skill of, EQ, of excuse me, empathy um, alongside these other skills that we know we've talked about already so far. Right. So I do want to ask you, I mean, not to take this in, in too much of a turn, but uh, Carol mentioned your background. And, and I do wonder, I mean, give us the the one minute version of, you know, sort of how you touch those different things and end up um, doing what you're doing leading a school. Well, I think it's... Uh, one of the things we want to teach our girls is to be risk takers and follow their follow their personal passions and see where it gets them. And I had the good fortune of going to Baldwin myself. I too, and I'm an alum of an all girls school. And when I was young, my dream job was to fly uh, jets for the Navy, and I pursued that passion. And then it took me different directions. And one day, was given the opportunity to give back to the community that gave me so much. And set the stage for the next generation. And so it's one of those moments where we uh, take risks in new ways and learn to lean into leadership. Uh, so it's it's both the fact that I had my own uh, chance and then I'm ready to give it to the next generation, make sure they're set up for success too. What was your experience though uh, in, the, in the U.S. military, in the U.S. Navy? Because I feel like that can be such a difficult world for women still. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, part and parcel of having navigated a lot of male-dominated fields and for everyone who's listening and is in a tech industry or a corporate industry and finance, it's still a place where there's so many barriers that we see on a daily basis that you get used to them. Um, It's the moment when you put on your equipment and you realize the equipment was made for a man of a different size and different shape and doesn't really fit me. So I actually had to sign a waiver saying, if anything happened, I'd be okay with it and went through the U.S. military. And yet... Um, it, yet it, it was you know, what I wanted to do and I had the good fortune of having mentors, male mentors as well, who set the stage for me and allow me to, to pursue that passion. Uh, but I do think that it, it does take a certain um, resilience, a certain uh, competitive spirit. I mean, that was for me something that really made a big difference um, and that we want to make sure our girls have those core skills so they can pursue these fields no matter um, you know, when they get older, no matter what the gender bias looks like then. Well, I'm thinking about your book, too, and I'm, I'm wondering what the Marissa today would tell the younger Marissa um, b- based on what you've learned. Oh, yeah, I think it, it's interesting. I, um, I came to my voice despite my all-girls upbringing um, and despite a lot of what I was told. I think um, in some ways I came to a little bit of my voice late. I mean, there's one story in the book where I had the most pivotal moment in my career at some level um, was sitting around the table in the West Wing with the President of the United States that moment we all dream about where you're like stuck, you know, literally, you know, asking, talking about national security, talking about my area of expertise. And it was the cliche of cat got your tongue. And I watched other people around the table um, speak to my issue set. And I left just thinking, wow, missed my opportunity. I had the good fortune of being able to sit down with um, the president later and and speak to him about um, Al Qaeda and ISIS and my issues. And so I I did recover. um, But I, I do think there's, moments when uh, I, too, realized that there was just a hurdle I had to overcome, and I had to still train myself, even as a young adult, to do these things. And I think we want the next generation not to have those moments. 
so I do wonder when you came into this job, what was one thing or, or a couple things that you changed or adapted or, or did differently based on your experience there as a student, but then your later experience in the military and then uh, in the government? Yeah. Well, uh, on you know, on one hand, we have such expert teachers and administrators that I, you know, have the good fortune of letting them reinvent the curriculum on a daily basis and things that go on in schools these days. It's just it blows your mind. So, um, you know, on that level, I was walking into a really wonderful situation. Um, and yet, I always think we can do more to talk to our girls and really be honest with them about what it takes for. Um, for young women to grow into their best leadership self. And so we did start a leadership course for our seniors, and we talk uh, very directly about some of the challenges that they'll face, particularly as women, not just in college, but as they leave and enter the real world. And I think as the system is changing, there's still a lot of barriers to entry and things that we want our girls to, to know about before they you know, meet these situations so they can face them head on. And I think it's also about um, teaching really how our girls want to, you know, learn from failure, how they should be taking risks, how they need to be resilient. And that's part of this book as well is really what we can do to teach the skills of resilience, the skills of risk taking um, from an early age so that, you know, they're ready to be the entrepreneurs that we know they need to be and want to be when they get get older. I have to say, bam, Marissa, man, when you said about this idea of taking risks, like I, I, I mentor a lot of younger women and I constantly am saying, and I say this to my daughter who's 17, you know, make yourself uncomfortable and don't be afraid and and take those risks because I do think that there is a big difference between men and women and I know that there are studies out there that even for jobs that women feel like they have to tick the boxes on everything and men are like yeah I got most of them you know <laughs> I'm perfect for the job there I don't know whether it's just the DNA what what it is but I feel like that's something that women and young girls have to be more comfortable with 100% and studies show exactly what you're saying and I think every woman listening to their show can, can remember a moment when they realize they let some uh, a guy take an opportunity that could have been theirs if only they were a little more of a risk taker or put themselves forward. Um, and I think if we can talk about this from an early age and there are things we can do concretely to push our girls to, to practice feeling uncomfortable, yeah. get used to those moments, and they build a muscle that later on when they're adults will be like, yeah, no, I got this. I'm okay with that moment because when I was little, my parents, my teachers, my family members encouraged that in me. And there's tricks and skills and strategies that work for that. And that's what the book is about. I have to follow up. Jason and I, I'm like pointing at him. I'm like, yeah, see, it's you men. But no, I don't really mean that. But I mean, there is something about... It was you funny. do mean it. You're just hopefully not talking well, about me. But no, I was around... I have a lot of nieces and they're in their mid to, you know, or young 20s. But this whole idea of like, women are so quick to say sorry and back yeah. off. And, and I do think that there is something in society that has yet to change to accept women who are powerful and strong and aggressive. Very much so. And there's interesting studies that show about competitiveness, right, mm -hmm. and how we nurture this healthy competitive nature. We think com competition is, you know, thought of as bad for a lot of our young girls. They think, no, it's about, I don't want to beat my friend. I don't want to stand out at the spelling bee or on the soccer field. And we need our girls to thrive in a competitive environment because it's a good thing. You know, guys do it and we know that it takes that to get to the top in any industry. Um, and it's healthy, too. It's not a maladaptation. So, you know, it's about that. It's about how we own our best self and, 
you know, and, and have a little feistiness with it. You know, you could call it aggressiveness, but you could also just call right. it feistiness too, right? Yeah, and being right. in the game, right? Jason, that's Dr. Marissa Porges. She's the head of the Baldwin School. It's an all-girls school, pre-K through 12th grade. And I like what she said, you know, kids and the skills that they need to succeed. She stresses that in girls in particular, they must nurture essential traits to fully flourish. I also love her story, you know, this mm. sort of like personal boomerang where she goes to this school and then has this amazing career trailblazing in many ways. She told us a great story about being at the table, yeah. literally at the table with the President of the United States and sort of what happened then. So uh, really good to catch up with her. The book, What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour. We're going to take a look at the future of travel with the founder and CEO of Abercrombie and Kent. This is like, if you want to take a safari to Africa, if you want to climb a mountain, I mean, there's lots of crazy trips you can take. Yeah. Looking forward to traveling once again. And this Mm. guy has a window into what it's going to look like. Plus, the magazine's cover story, it's all about Google's push into healthcare and how it may be a case study on how tech giants dominate small businesses. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Including a guest, Jason, that your family is pretty familiar with. We're talking about Jeffrey Kent. He's the founder and CEO of Abercrombie & Kent. We're going to talk about the future of travel, especially in a post-COVID-19 world. Yeah, these guys do really cool adventures. I've never actually been on one of these trips, (laughs) but I know people who have. Plus, we're going to look at Google's push into healthcare. It's this week's cover story, a fascinating look, maybe at a side of Google you don't know. First up, Vivek Ranadive. He's the co-founder and managing director of the venture capital firm Bo Capital, owner and chairman of the Sacramento Kings NBA franchise. He's also the founder of Tibco, but... What's interesting, Jason, he has joined the Blank Check Company Parade. So we talked with him about that and also what it's like being in the NBA bubble down in Disney World. Well, it's great. Uh, you, you know, we get tested like once or twice a day. Uh, but kudos to Adam Silver and the NBA for uh, creating the bubble. Everyone is virus-free. Uh, the games are going on. I wish my team was doing better. Yeah. Uh, but it's, fan- it's fantastic here. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up. It's been a tough run, yeah. but um, but it's listen, been a tough run. an amazing experience, and hopefully we can talk a little basketball in a second. I do want to ask you, though, because you are in the midst of another boom of sorts, which is in these blank check companies, the SPAC special purpose acquisition companies. Tell us about why you chose this way of going public. Tell us about BoX. Yeah, so I started BoX a few years ago. It stands for Better Our World. Uh, and there's just two investors in the venture capital part of Bo, which is the 10-campus uh, UC system. It's the rog- largest research platform in the country, uh, and myself. Uh, and we're the board, the entrepreneurs, the arrow. And it's really uh, the, the mission is to fund companies that use technology to advance society. Uh, so I built this platform out, and I was seeing companies stay private longer and many of the entrepreneurs were coming to me. They called me the OG, which they say stands for original gangster, where I think it means old guy. And, and they were coming to me and asking me for help and saying, hey, can you invest? Can you help? Uh, and we're entering a really ex- exciting era right now. I call it kind of Civilization 3.0, where we're transitioning from the industrial age to the digital age. And it's going to create 
the largest wealth creation opportunity in human history. So there's a trillion dollars plus that's gone into these private tech companies, and they still remain private, and they need to come out on the other end. So we have these rocket ships that are waiting to burst out, uh, just get out of Earth's orbit and reach for the stars. And what they need is rocket fuel. Uh, they need they need money. They need it quickly. Uh, they need coaching. They need mentorship. They need connections. Uh, they need certainty, and they need to be able to execute on all of that. Now, one of the things about great entrepreneurs, and I was lucky to be friends with guys like Steve Jobs, is that they were also great storytellers. And the new generation of entrepreneurs is no different. They, they want all the same things. They want certainty. They want speed. Uh, they want execution. And they, too, are great storytellers. Now, the beauty of the SPAC is that you go out under a S4, which is a merger agreement, as opposed to a S1 with an IPO. So with that, you can actually tell the story. Uh, you can provide future projections. And so it's the absolute perfect fuel for these new rockets that we're seeing. It sounds like you already have some entrepreneurs in mind. Is that fair to say? And if so, I'm just curious about the types of technologies, you know, the visions or the visionaries that are capturing your attention right now, Vivek. Yeah, so we have about 1,500 to 2,000 companies that we've been tracking. Uh, you know, think of us as a reverse SoftBank. SoftBank comes in at the end and gives you big checks and, you know, with a one-hour meeting. Uh, so on the other hand, we're working with these companies. Uh, many of them are in our portfolio. We see the first deck. We see the second deck. We get to know them. We have data. We have history. We have a relationship. Uh, and so these are game-changing companies. You know, these are companies that are using data to completely disrupt entire sectors. Uh, so we have a company called Farmers Business Network in our portfolio, uh, and you know they are using data to disrupt our agriculture. Uh, they they started as a uh, Bloomberg for farmers and have now become kind of a Amazon for farmers. Gigantic market, brilliant visionary entrepreneurs, already doing hundreds of millions in revenue, doubling every year. So we have. You know, like 150 companies that we think are spackable and about 50 of them that are spackable in the not-too-distant future. You know, you said something really interesting, Vivek, that we only have a minute to talk about. Player empowerment, the Players League, this has been quite a moment for the NBA. What do you do in a minute or less as an owner to ensure that players have the voice that they need? Yeah, so I've always been all about the players. And so, uh, you know, we... Uh, you know, in my mind, I was the first person to support Black Lives Matter, which was important uh, to our players. Uh, you know, I was the first person to speak out against what happened at the Clippers. Uh, so we talk to our players. You know, we hold uh, uh, sessions where we get together players, kids from the inner city, you know, the police. Uh, so the players have a huge voice in the NBA. Uh, you know, one of the things I love about basketball in the NBA is that, you know, we don't really care. Uh, what the color of your skin is, what your ethnicity, your religion, your sexual orientation. You know, we just got one question. You got game? If you right. got game, uh -huh. then come join us. And that's what I love about sports. 
That's Vivek Ranadive. He's the owner of the Sacramento Kings. And I think pretty wild, Jason, to talk with him as he's actually in the bubble at Disney World where he's getting tested one to two times a day. I'm guessing everybody's getting tested that much. Yeah, listen, they've been very fortunate so far. He's also got an eye on Wall Street, everything going on with these blank check companies. It is all the rage. So really good to catch up with him. He's a character. He is a character. So he's living in a bubble and also working on creating a kind of bubble community is Duke University. And we caught up with the dean of Duke's Fuqua Business School to talk about getting back to school in the fall. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing some of the most important and informative conversations we have throughout the week on our daily radio show, A lot of our chats, Jason, were about education and getting back to school in the fall. Listen, this has been a theme we've been teasing out just about every week. Mm -hmm. It's important to us. We also know that it's really important to folks out there who have high school, college-age kids, even elementary school kids. We also have a special place in our hearts for business schools. So we checked in with Bill Bolding. He is the dean of the Fuqua School of Business down at Duke University. Check it out. It's been unbelievably challenging to to navigate this pandemic. Uh, We are re opening in the next few weeks. Our plan is to uh, bring our students into into our buildings and that our classrooms will be uh, a combination of face-to-face instruction, some people in the room, other people participating virtually. And so we have the ability to allow the simultaneous uh, kind of physical and digital participation And we're telling both our faculty and students that no one has to be physically in the building because we want to make sure that our number one priority is making people feel as safe as possible. In order to do that, there there are a bunch of things that have to be put into place uh, in order to, uh, to, to ensure the safety of our community, though. Such as? So uh, the first thing is that uh, with, with all the kind of the moving uh, advances around testing, we're going to require that all of our students be tested before and receive a negative test uh, before they're allowed into our building. Uh, once they've passed the first hurdle around the initial test, there'll be a follow-up testing um, through the term uh, for the students, the faculty, and the staff that uh, are engaging with one another. There is a a monitoring process where every person who comes into our building every day has to fill out a a health app um, and make sure that they're not experiencing any symptoms. Um, Once they're they're in the building, uh, we're going to be following strict rules around social distancing. And so a classroom that would normally comfortably hold 75 people with physical distancing requirements of six feet or more, that, that number goes down to 22. And so we're doing creative things like using um, uh, bigger spaces like our library, like a ballroom space where normally you might have, say, 300 people in that space. You could fit uh, 75 people. Uh, We're also adding tents to the campus so that people can safely interact with one another um, outside. And we're making everybody sign a compact uh, because a, a lot of the concerns that people have around the behaviors, uh, are they going to follow the basic protocols that are needed, um, and, and we will be requiring masks uh, both for faculty and students uh, the minute that they step onto campus, mm. and that will continue while they're in the classroom together. So 
it's going to look and feel very different, but we will be bringing people back into our building. It sounds like you are essentially creating a bubble community. That's where uh, I think about it that way quite a bit. We're not quite at the level of the NBA where they truly have created a bubble. We, we can't do that because we're, we're not at Disney World. Yeah. Uh, and so our students go home in the evening and, and we lose the, the control over the bubble. But that's essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to control as much as we can about the environment so that we can give people the, the comfort level um, in this environment where, as you well know, people are just scared. They're mm-hmm. anxious uh, given the, the health crisis. And then there, there are kind of two other layers of, of this crisis in terms of the, your economic well-being and, and a crisis of values and, and is is our society going to live up to the social contract around fairness and justice? So there's an enormous amount of stress as we, as we work with people, bring them back into our programs. We want to make sure that we take out of the equation the stress around health issues. I feel like, Bill, this is such a charged year because of the virus, but also because of what happened in Minneapolis. And I just do wonder, you know, I always feel like we turn to academia to kind of help our way through this. Um, I'm curious how that's, you know, affecting you folks at your institution and maybe some of the teachings that might happen come fall. Yes. So when it comes to events happening in the world, we absolutely don't want a bubble. We don't want to isolate our students from the realities of, of these incredibly difficult circumstances that we're facing. So we want the, the outside world to permeate the experience and um, make sure that everyone in our community understands our responsibility to, to step up and to provide some, some guidance, some, uh, some leadership um, in, in this environment. I think that this, this crisis has, has laid bare in some sense, the need for what I call triple threat leadership capability. With, with the things that are happening uh, around the pandemic, you have people who are incredibly scared, justifiably so, incredibly anxious. And so we need, we need the kind of leadership capability that can bring people through this crisis, get them to the other side of the crisis, and make them feel like they've actually advanced in some way. So what is that triple threat capability? Uh, the first thing is that people need to have the IQ to understand and make sense of the environment. Second thing is they need to have the, the EQ or the emotional intelligence so that you understand the anxiety that people are facing, the, the stress, and can feel what they feel. And the third thing is something called DQ or a decency quotient, which is to actually care about other people and to give them a sense of belonging at a moment in time when, when they're simply so afraid, and also the integrity to be honest and transparent with people about the very real challenges that we're facing, not to sweep these challenges under the rug. But then ultimately, I come back full circle to you need to, in these bad times, you, you also have to have a plan. Right. Uh, you have to have the, the ability to think through what's going on, to come up with a plan, because ultimately people want to know, are they going to be okay? Mm. And so we feel like we have a responsibility for all of our students to absolutely address issues of racial equity and justice, to absolutely address issues around health disparities, uh, economic uh, disparities, 
all of that will be a part of the conversation, right. a part of the curriculum that our students experience. And that's Bill Bolding. He is dean of the Fuqua School of Business down at Duke University, well-ranked, of course, in the Bloomberg Business Week rankings. And what a challenge these guys mm, have. I do yeah. not envy them trying to manage all these different stakeholders and, candidly, manage customers. That's what ultimately these well, students are. They are making a big investment in their education. They are. And listen, to do it safely, he said, a lot of testing is going to be going on. They're going to have a hybrid approach that includes virtual learning along with in-classroom teachings. But he said, ultimately, no one has to be in the building if they don't feel comfortable about it. All right, coming up, this week's cover story, virus-related and about Google's push into healthcare and what it's doing to some small businesses. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, let's take a look at this week's cover story in Bloomberg Business Week. It's all about Google, but maybe not exactly what you expected. It follows really nicely on that testimony, Carol, Mm -hmm. in front of Congress. This story specifically about Google's push into healthcare. It's a case study in how tech giants dominate small businesses. And it's a reminder that all the things that the big tech companies are doing, it's all happening under the watchful eye of the U.S. government. We checked in with Shelley Banjo, Bloomberg News senior writer and Bloomberg Business Week editor, Jill Weber. The craziest thing about the story is that, um, you know, as these things go, is that you did, we didn't actually set out to write set out to write an antitrust story. We were kind of curious about all these ads that kept popping up during the pandemic around mental health and wanted to figure out, like, is, is someone profiting off of this pandemic from, like, a mental health perspective? And uh, we just started talking to therapists. And every single time we spoke to a therapist, it was Google, 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 Google. And um, particularly the one that we um, end up featuring the most in our story is this therapist um, named Ellen Roth, who said, um, you know, you can't have a business, uh, my kind of business, without without Google search. It's um, It's just like, you know, she goes through her list of monthly bills and it's, you know, rent, uh, you know, heating or air conditioning, power and, and Google. But what she noticed, Shelley, this is such a great story, is that during the pandemic, um, I think you know, you guys know it in your story that the prices for her regular keywords jumped sharply. And this is kind of a key way of getting noticed uh, in the online world. Right. So during the pandemic, everything else shut down except for the Internet. And so um, that was really the only way for people to find you. Um, And all of a sudden, uh, searches for online therapy shot up as people started to realize, oh, shoot, like this is not something that's going to be over quickly. I'm going to need some help with this. Um, And it just became prohibitively expensive for um, some of these therapists. Uh, to keep putting Google search ads and keep paying for them. But the problem is, if you don't pay for the search ads, you're not going to get the customer. And Google's really pushing this. I mean, you, you have some great anecdotes about, you know, the sales reps calling up, you know, these therapists and, and kind of putting the hard sell on them and using the, the economics and the economics of crisis, really, uh, in many ways to, to drive the business. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting nuance because it's, there's nothing wrong or illegal about making money, especially during, um, you know, pandemics or natural disasters. Every Bloomberg uh, story regarding natural disasters will look into who's making money off of, off of these kinds of things. Um, but uh, at the same time, these people have no other choice. And uh, Google can kind of take advantage of that by pushing things like automation, automation. Um, 
um, you know, not having as good of customer service and, and things that these people really rely on because there's no other place to go. And so the question is, once you become that monopoly and you have so much power, does it become then an antitrust issue? Play that out a little bit, Shelley. Where, where will lawmakers put their gaze um, and how does, how does all of this fit together in the weeks ahead? Yeah, so I mean, search dominance in itself is not illegal. Um, and so the issue for lawmakers is trying to figure out, um, is, is Google actually abusing that power? And so one other part of the story that we look into is this idea of Google directing people to certain places that make the most money for them. So with therapy, for example, now if you type in therapist, it's going to go up to, um, you're, you're going to spit out some, um, therapists near you that uh, on Google Maps that, that have paid for these services. And so, um, you know, does Google then take take over um, healthcare and search and, and those types of things that previously might have gone um, to, to other businesses? Are they going to be abusing that power? And what law, lawmakers need to find out is, you know, it, does it go beyond just being big? Does it go beyond just um, having power? It's what do you do with that power, and um, is, is that part of that illegal? And, and so, Shelley, the you know what the Google conversation is one that is um, obviously uh, something that the lawmakers will probably focus on um, more more so than um, other big tech companies, even perhaps. And and that uh, that power that they have, when you actually talk to the the small business owners and and the therapists that that are in the story. You know, the thing that I found sort of so fascinating about it was like, at the end of the day, this is the option for them, right? And so what other options do do they feel like they even have? Yeah, I mean, when you ask about Bing, which is the second search engine, the therapists would just laugh, honestly. They would just be like, that's not a thing. Um, we, we only have Google. Um, and the interesting thing is that Google likes to paint this big picture of competition with ads. Oh, there's Facebook and there's... Um, all sorts of different companies that um, even television and billboards, like we fight with everyone, um, but, you know, uh, at Amazon, but like nobody's going on Amazon to search for a therapist, right. at least not yet. That's Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, along with reporter Shelley Banjo. She wrote that story along with Mark Bergen. And as they point out, Jason, the U.S. Justice Department and almost every state attorney general, they are preparing antitrust cases that are expected to allege that Google's dominance is illegal. So listen, stay tuned. There's going to be a lot more on this. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the CEO of Abercrombie & Kent on the future of travel, especially when it comes to adventures. Right. How to do it safely in today's world. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Carol, let's finish off the show thinking, maybe daydreaming a little bit <laughs> about what's to come when we're able to get back on planes and not just back on planes, but climbing mountains, right. you know, tumbling through the tundra, <laughs> uh, looking at wild animals. This is a cool conversation. Yeah, I'm ready for a safari to Africa. What's interesting is this next guest, they pioneered the luxury adventure more than 50 years ago. We're talking about Abercrombie and Kent. We caught up with the founder and CEO, Jeffrey Kent. Yes, I was actually born in Zambia um, on a safari with my mom and dad. And I was only there about a week. And then we flew back to uh, Kenya, where we had a farm. And that's where I grew up and went to school and everything else. Yeah, so yeah, I was born on safari. Very typical. Born into this business. That's amazing. 
Um, so bring us up to the present. What What is business like right now? Because the world has been shut down for a few months. Yeah, I must say this, this, this pandemic has been, for our particular industry, has been bad. You know, I mean, obviously nobody can travel. Um, it's beginning to uh, open up a little bit in the United States. People want to take road drives. I mean, you have a beautiful country in the States, and you know, people want to see the American West and Alaska. And um, just put the phone down. Somebody wants to take his whole family there. Because then it has Wi-Fi, they can take a private ranch, and they can have fun outside rather than just be cooped up in their home. So the first thing, that is opening up in Europe. <clears throat> the English are taking, um, they tend to be taking villas, going to Greece and to France. Um, so that's opening up. And also, another call today, somebody who wants to do um, a big safari, and we'll put it off for 2020, but we'll do it in 20, and so they're moving everything of 2020 to 2021. So we have a lot of life, but not actual big traveling right now, but everybody wants to travel, that's for sure. So forgive me, and we're kind of nerdy, um, Jeffrey, in terms of numbers. So how much has was business down because of the pandemic, and how much has bounced back? I mean, I mean, business is down... You know, over over seventy percent. Yeah. And it's, but it's bouncing back slowly. It's sort of just a drag. The problem with this uh, with this COVID is that either today we learned wonderful news: the Americans can travel again. However, many countries don't have America, so we have to go through that. So it's always it's always one thing or the other. But you know, the fact is, there's a great core of people who want to travel, and we're there, and, and they will travel. So we're not we're a little despondent, but not very despondent. You know what I was going to say, Jeffrey? Like, I think about some of the things, whether it's a safari or some other things, you know, it's wide open spaces. And I do think that as people start to travel, I know for me, I want to go to places where there aren't a lot of people. <laughs> exactly. And that, that's why people right now, I mean, our most favorite thing which you're feeling well, is the big, um, I call it green shoots, but I'd like to have sort of big bamboo clumps rather than shoots. What is selling are the national parks of the, of the United States. And we're doing that by air. They're going to Yosemite, Grand Canyon, uh, Yellowstone, and um, they fly as family groups. They get there. They have a private plane, private cars, and enjoy this, uh, enjoy your beautiful country. But that is selling. Right. And it, it sounds like you're also able to create situations where whether it is part of a resort or a ranch or something like that, you can essentially kind of wall it off and almost uh, create a, a quarantine environment, as it were, for a family, even if it's uh, multi-generations. We just had a multi-generational family. They went to Wyoming. We took over a dew ranch. And we had three generations of one family. And they raved about their horseback riding and the Shadow the Teton by day, get a salmon bake in the banks of the Snake River, incredible stargazing at night, and they loved the whole trip. Actually, they wondered why they hadn't done it before. <laughs> right. It was a great success. Jeffrey, though, how have you, as you just mentioned to Jason and me before, you know, you talked about uh, the big national parks in the United States, how people are rediscovering them, and that's certainly in demand. Are you making any shifts in your business, you know, strategically because of what has happened as a result of the pandemic? Actually, we've already made the shift. You know, we always wanted to have a, a ground operating company in the United States, and we set it up two years ago, so the timing was, was excellent in, in every respect. But um, yeah, that's one big shift. But also, you know, we've also anticipated, because we've really created 
experiential trips. All of our camps in Africa are small. They take only like 24 people. They have private entrances. Uh, they, you can eat outside. You can have all the social distancing. And above all, we have great experiences. I mean, if you go to East Africa, and you mentioned uh, Mount Kilimanjaro just now, and uh, I've climbed it twice, by the way, but you've got to do it, 19,342 feet. Um, but also, you can see the great migration of the wildebeest uh. in uh, Kenya and Tanzania. And if you have time, go into Uganda and see gorilla. It's a perfect wow. two-week holiday. Yeah, no, I I have looked with envy at some of the those same trips that my uh, father has done through a number of parts of of Africa uh, with you guys and and with others. Um, I do want to ask you though, Jeffrey. I mean, what have you heard from from customers about you know things that they might want to do differently? What are their expectations when it comes to social distancing and and those sorts of different kinds of amenities or different kinds of approaches, you know, you mentioned, and, and Carol rightly said, some of these are, are very naturally sort of socially distant activities. But but I do wonder, are there certain even sort of minor things that you have to do, whether it relates to how they get there or dining once they are there? What are the tweaks you have to make? Well, you know, we're, we're modeling everything around the World Travel and Tourism Council who have their own um, you know, they've got a, a complete panel on it, and I was chairman of WTTC for about six years and a founder member. And we're putting in all their, all the provisos that they require. But, you know, our clients, on the whole, are very adventurous. They trust us that we're going to do the things, as you've just been discussing, whether it's more social distancing, separate, uh, separate entrances, dining, outside, if you can do it, and all those things. And all they're really interested in is getting away and going. That's right. what they're really excited about. And um, uh, so, yeah, luckily they just want the excitement. What's a, I, I got to ask you, though, um, uh, what's your favorite trip? You know, so I, I, I've traveled 17 million miles. <laughs> I've been to 157 countries. And actually, I'm a Kenyan. You know, I was born, brought up, went to school there. And my favorite trip is still... The Maasai Mara in the month early September, when you see the whole world of East migration ah. coming in and crossing the Mara River. You know, it's so exciting and so wonderful. And so, um, you know, that, that, that's probably still my favorite. But, you know, any safari. Botswana is very special to the Okavango. We have a wonderful camp called Chief Camp, um, right in the middle of, right in the wilderness. And that's an amazing trip, too. I will say my daughter has done, um, been to Tanzania and, and just talked about, you know, there's pictures of them just, you know, a lion, right? You know, just, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> the animals that were around them um, and just out there in their natural habitat. And, you know, it's memories like that you just never forget. And also, you know, I love expedition cruising. You know, we're celebrating mm. our 30th anniversary of luxury expedition cruising. And um, I'm taking a trip to the Northeast Passage next year, the Russian Arctic, in August of next year, which will be very, very exciting. How do you do that safely? How many people are on a boat? Uh, probably only take about 100 people on the boat. And the boat takes up to 200, so they'll be well spaced out. Yeah. Obviously, the crew will go into quarantine before they get on it, and the people will have, obviously, 
COVID tests before they get on, but hopefully by then. That's Abercrombie and Kent founder and co-chairman Jeffrey Kent. And I got to say, Jason, I'm kind of salivating. I would love to go on so many of those different trips. Me too. Yeah. And my family, as we mentioned, has been on a couple of them. So I got to get in on that action for sure. And listen, uh, socially distanced safaris and renting out dude ranches, they're good for that (laughs) sort of thing. Um, It does remind us too that People are moving around. They're also making big decisions about where they're going to live and where they're going to work. And that was the subject that we really dove into in our Business Week Extra podcast this week. The issue is walking in the store. Right. And, and I think when we look at, um, you know, how do you get people so they don't bump into each other? So I think what seeing what's streaming shopping, and like, so we're releasing a, a platform very shortly to go after this. I, I think that's going to be a way for you to at least engage and ask questions in your home, and then you'll be able to buy or, or do a curbside pickup. And, or, you know, and I think that, that's really where the future is going to be. Yeah, that was Rob Lacasio, founder and CEO of Live Person. That is our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. And Jason, you and I, man, that conversation went a lot of places that I did not expect. We expected to talk about the role of technology and AI on consumer-based companies. He talked a lot about how retail is changing, gave us some very specific examples. But as you said, and how you kicked it off in this little teaser, is what they are doing as a company, and they have no plans at all to go back to their New York City offices. And Rob is a diehard New Yorker. So for him to say this, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, cities are changing, and we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Some are optimistic that it'll change them for the better. Some think that maybe this is the reset that cities needed because we know from living in and around New York, it's incredibly expensive. Same can be said for San Francisco. Same can be said for Los Angeles and other big cities around the country. So check out that conversation. It's thought-provoking, especially as a lot of people take a step back and think about what's next. Well, that's going to wrap up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily Bloomberg Business Week podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to watch our show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. Stay safe, everyone. This is Bloomberg.